Hello all, and welcome to Current Account with Clay Lowry, the Executive Vice President here at the Institute of International Finance. The purpose of this podcast is to bring to your attention current issues in international finance and economics, as well as provide a U.S. policy and politics angle on these different issues. Clay, over to you. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Current Account. I'm your host, Clay Lowry. In this episode, I wanted to cover some of the big themes and the main takeaways from the IIF's annual membership meeting, as well as the annual meetings of the World Bank and IMF, that's the International Monetary Fund, which were held in Washington, D.C. from October 10th to October 14th. This episode is going to be about one word, and that word is risk. The IMF and World Bank hold their annual meetings each year, and almost every major economy's central bank governor and finance minister, as well as a number of financial regulators, gather together. In addition, it is widely attended by the private sector in terms of different types of financial institutions, whether they are insurance companies, whether they're asset managers, banks, they are digital players. The IIF does its part during this time, as we mentioned in our episode two weeks ago with our CEO, Tim Adams. We had our membership meeting. We had over 150 speakers, 60 different discussion topics, ranging from central bank governors and other top policy officials to CEOs of global as well as regional financial institutions throughout the world, to actually having technicians and market analysts provide their insights. From a sports perspective, it is like the financial and economic geek equivalent to a Super Bowl or maybe even the World Cup, except unlike sports, there is no real conclusion and there is no saying, better luck next year. So anyone who reads newspapers would know that the mood at these meetings was very dark as forecasters have significantly downgraded their economic forecasts and have frankly shown a lot more humility about the persistence of inflation, which seems a lot more persistent than otherwise was the case. And at the same time, we also saw what was probably best described as an economic calamity emanating from the United Kingdom that eventually led to the ousting of their chancellor of the exchequer and subsequently his boss, the prime minister of only 45 days, Liz Truss. In short, All of these things came together, and I felt like actually shouting the opposite of what any politician would shout or what a sports team looking to next year would shout. That is, the worst is yet to come. So with that uplifting note, let me talk to you about the risks I heard about. And as I was preparing for today's podcast, I thought it seemed a bit over the top for me to talk about 53 risks that I heard about during the last week or so. So I tried to simplify and bucket them into three risks. And those three risks are capital, geopolitical slash energy, and unforeseen consequences of economic policymaking slash liquidity. That's a long one. So let me talk about those three risks that I heard listening and talking to a variety of officials and private sector members. Capital. So what is capital? Banks have to raise capital or equity instead of debt to fund themselves. And that acts as a buffer in case something goes dreadfully wrong. There are debates that are longstanding in academic circles and regulatory circles and banking circles 
about what is the proper amount of equity to hold. And the reason is, is because equity is more expensive than debt. The worry that we were hearing is that the bad economic issues, inflation, economic downturn, tightening financial conditions, a rising dollar, all of these things are going to potentially, not all, but potentially harm the banking system. And so the idea of raising capital in what could be a lot of headwind seemed to make those who do banking or follow banking more nervous about that type of risk. And you see this in just normal regulatory reform, but also in how we're thinking about two of the big issues that we've talked about on a number of podcasts, sustainable finance and digital finance. On the sustainable finance side, there's been discussion about whether or not financial institutions need to hold more capital in order to deal with the risks of climate change. Or do they need to hold more capital because of the type of lending that they do? I think that there has been kind of a pushback against this because of, A, the points I made earlier about capital, but also, is this going to be done in a way that makes sense given the lack of data and that the risks involved may be very medium, even longer term than they are in the shorter term. On the digital side, there is a concern that public sector and the private sector are still trying to figure out how to deal with these issues. Yet there is a push to have on digital assets banks in particular hold more capital on a fairly, if not very, conservative basis. Now, if you were talking to policymakers, they would probably tell you, look, we have to wall off financial institutions from contagious risk. And so that's why they're trying to figure this out as well. So that balance is a hard balance to get right, but it is a risk nevertheless. And so that was something we heard a lot about. The second risk, and I don't think this will be a surprise to anybody, is geopolitical risks and what that actually means, particularly on the energy markets, but it's not just energy markets. Clearly, issue one, Russia, Ukraine, the invasion of Russia, and the fact that now we have the leader of Russia is talking at least openly about the idea of using tactical nuclear weapons, not something that we're kind of used to. As we've all seen, this has had a pretty significant uh, impact, particularly in the energy markets and where we've seen energy prices go up. We've seen a lot more volatility right before the annual meetings happened. We saw OPEC plus basically said that they are going to cut some production levels, which could lead towards more price increases. So when you talk to energy experts, the first thing they were saying to us during that week is, we're not on the verge of an energy crisis. No, 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 no. We are in the middle of an energy crisis. And it is not just an energy crisis in the short term. The short term being, can we get through this winter, particularly in Europe, without people freezing to death? It's more of a medium term one. Is the medium term, can we get, if we get through this winter, can we get through the next winter? Because Russia is a big exporter of natural gas and oil to Europe. But also, 
the costs of energy have gone up so dramatically that it could lead towards a deindustrialization over the medium term because companies in Germany, for instance, their input costs, energy, have gone up so tremendously that it becomes very hard for them to be profitable. So could this actually have a medium-term impact over basically their economic society? The third risk, and I didn't really know how to label this, is I called it economic policy mistakes coupled with liquidity issues, but it may just be the oops factor. The one that folks talk about a fair amount is, are central banks making a mistake by increasing interest rates at such a quick rate, this is largely led by the Federal Reserve, but also the European Central Bank, and so that monetary tightening in order to get rid of the bloated balance sheets that central banks have could lead towards, instead of controlling inflation, harming economic growth and driving economies into recession. As I mentioned at the beginning, there was a lot of predictions of downgrades by economic forecasters. And some of those downgrades suggest that the European economies will be fairly flat in 2023. There are others, including those here at the IIF, who think that that's actually optimistic and that we will see a recession in Europe and that recession could be pretty significant. These are tough policy calls by central banks. Sometimes they get it right and sometimes they get it wrong. But it also leads towards there are sometimes consequences that were not totally foreseen when you're making those economic policy calls. The clearest manifestation of this, unfortunately, is what's happened recently in the United Kingdom. And we heard a lot about this during the meetings. The United Kingdom came in with a fiscal policy that did not seem to be well-coordinated with their monetary policy. This created a liquidity crisis, and it backed up in an area that nobody had thought about, which was the pension system in the United Kingdom, which led towards an economic downturn and the pound, the UK's currency, depreciating pretty significantly. Eventually, it led towards a political backlash, as I mentioned earlier in the program. But there are other unintended consequences that are potentially out there. The increase in interest rates that we have seen in a lot of developed country programs is to get inflation under control. At the same time, though, it has driven the dollar up significantly. And one consequence of that is, is exacerbating debt vulnerabilities, particularly in emerging markets. As we move forward on a climate change agenda, there is concern about how do you deal with transition finance if we come too tough on the regulatory aspect of a climate change could this harm finance not just to fossil fuel companies but also to small and medium enterprises which are in many respects the job creators of a lot of economies and need finance but if the risks are too high for financial institutions then that finance might not come come due. A different risk could come about for the United States is taking policy steps to basically cut China off from technology. We've talked about this before on earlier episodes, but it became even more prominent in the last week or two. And the United States seems to be getting tougher and tougher on these issues. What are the consequences of this? One we saw is that they had to almost immediately after putting down in practice 
what they were going to do is allow other chip, like semiconductor chip making companies, exceptions to the rule because they hadn't thought about some of the consequences that could happen to companies in Taiwan or Japan or even U.S. companies that are based elsewhere. China has taken a very strong policy call on locking down its economy for COVID reasons. This has clearly had a harm on the Chinese economy, maybe something that China's leadership has been willing to take in order to try to get control of COVID. But it's clearly not an intended consequence. And then if there is an actual pivot, so a pivot would be that the Chinese release or allow for the lockdown to come away, could that actually increase inflation around the world? Why would that be? The Chinese economy, there would be demand that has been untapped because they've been in lockdown. That could drive up, China is a big energy importer that could drive up energy prices. Energy prices could drive up inflation, et cetera. So that hasn't happened yet, but it is something that because of policy calls that are going on right now could have unintended consequences down the road. Anyway, as you can tell, these are big risks and a lot of them came up over and over again during the last week and a half. Now it's my time for the three, two, one. These are my three takeaways from the annual meetings. One, doom and gloom. Um, it is uh, a pretty sour environment out there. And all we can do is be hopeful that some of the forecasts that we're seeing on economics are incorrect. Next, there are clearly many risks in the economy. So instead of having what we call upside risks, most everything I heard about was of downside risks, even on the doom and gloom scenarios. And third is the unknown consequences of policymaking. Clearly, the UK is the biggest example of that recently, but there are other examples out there that we have to pay attention to. My two things that I'm looking forward to. One is this COVID pivot I mentioned for China. Now, this may not happen for six months, nine months, a year, or it may happen within a few weeks, but if China decides to end some of its lockdowns, what does that unleash in terms of economic activity and in terms of potential consequences for global growth and global inflation? And the second thing I'm looking forward to is what's going to happen on December 5th. At that time, Europe is supposed to implement its prohibition on Russian oil exports. Does this have immediate impact on oil prices? Does it harm Europe even more? How does the Russian government react to it? All of those things is coming up. And finally, here's my one sports fact of the week. And that is to discuss the Ballon d'Or, which is given to the best soccer player in the world and is my horrible French pronunciation of that word. It is one month out from the actual World Cup of Soccer, which will take place in Qatar. And the best players in the world this year was, for the men's side, was the Real Madrid striker, Karim Benzema, who will be representing France when the World Cup starts. In the past year, Benzema led his team to both the La Liga Championship in Spain, scoring 27 goals, and to the Champions League Championship throughout Europe, scoring another 15 goals. Congratulations to him. It sounds like he was, I think, the oldest or the second oldest winner of the award. 
But there were two things that struck me that were interesting about this year's winner. The first is by far the most important one, which was this was the first time since 2007, so basically 15 years, that neither Cristiano Ronaldo, who's from Portugal, nor Lionel Messi, who's from Argentina, finished in the top three finalists. Ronaldo, who's won the award five times, finished 20th this year. And Messi, who's won it seven times, no one else besides Ronaldo is even close to that mark, was not even considered because he wasn't considered in the top 25. The second interesting thing I noticed was this is supposed to be the best player in the world in soccer. Yet no one who plays outside of European leagues even made the top 25 players. Thus, let's say you're an amazing soccer player who plays in Mexico or in Japan or the United States. Could you even be considered for this award? Now, my presumption is that this is the market at work. The best players in the world essentially play in Europe because as Lionel Messi, for instance, is from Argentina because of the prestige and the money of playing in Europe. But I do wonder if there is a little bit of bias in the system. I would note that neither Pele from Brazil nor Diego Maradona from Argentina ever won the award, despite many considering to be the two best players of all time outside of maybe Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo. Anyway, things to ponder. Thank you very much for joining me on Current Account, and I look forward to talking to you next week. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Current Account with Clay Lowry. We'd love to hear from you, so please feel free to provide us any feedback or ideas about the show as we're always looking to improve and make these episodes fun and relevant for the audience. You can provide feedback at podcast at IIF.com. Make sure to tune in Monday for our next episode. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.